Welcome to Season 2, Episode 13 of Breaking Down Barriers, a podcast for entrepreneurship community practitioners. This podcast is a production of Startup Space, an entrepreneurship community building platform. I'm your host, David Ponraj. We're launching this podcast to highlight the stories of everyday community leaders who break down barriers to entry for underserved and underrepresented entrepreneurs. Today, we'll be speaking with Matt Wagner, Chief Program Officer at National Main Street Center. Welcome, Matt. Thanks, David. Great to be here with you. So, Matt, tell us a little bit about the work that you do at National Main Street Center and what does National Main Street Center do as well? Yeah, so, yeah, thank you. So, the National Main Street Center is a subsidiary of the National Trust for Historic Preservation. Uh, we just celebrated our 40, 41st anniversary. So, certainly uh, not necessarily a newcomer. Uh, to the space around primarily downtown revitalization and urban commercial district revitalization. So working in neighborhoods across various cities uh, within the country. And uh, so my role uh, at uh, the National Main Street Center primarily comprises three different areas. One is our research agenda. We certainly feel that when it comes to serving small business um, owners in downtowns and districts across the country, that being more data-driven is essential. And we certainly know that this has been an area that hasn't been focused on by a lot of sort of the more significant sort of marketing houses or big corporate uh, players. Um, I also manage and oversee our field services, which is our technical consulting uh, area. And that really gives us the ability to kind of take a deeper dive into understanding what's truly happening within the trenches so that we're better prepared to, you know, develop programs and projects and that sort of thing. And then the third area is relatively new, uh, and that's just seeking out, you know, what new areas do we need to be playing in? So thinking of it as kind of like our research and development division, uh, uh, but in the nonprofit revitalization space. I've got lots of questions already for you that I'm writing down. Uh, but first, I'd like to know your inspiration. What got you into this field? A lot of this is pretty hard work. What inspires you to keep going every day? Yeah, so I, I think a couple things. Uh, one is um, that, you know, my, my father was a small business um, owner. I saw the struggles um, in that growing up and, and watching what it was like to, to own a restaurant, which we all know is quite time demanding. Um, And then I think it's, uh, you know, I've always had um, a deep desire to work at the community level. And so that's where I started my uh, career. And I always feel that because of our role nationally and working directly with communities and small businesses, often um, we still have that opportunity uh, for active engagement. And I think the final thing for me, the one that sort of inspires and and keeps you going and excited about the, the work is um, how we are structured organizationally. Our mindset is very entrepreneurial as well. And so we're constantly thinking about better ways, you know, continuous improvement, more innovative ways to better serve, you know, our downtowns and commercial districts, our main street corridors uh, across the country. And that's uh, that makes for an exciting uh, time period, even during the global pandemic. Uh, it's been, you know, fast and furious and keeping agile, um, and uh, but also quite a bit of fun. 
I love the renewed focus on Main Street and downtowns. People are starting to realize that they are so critical uh, to how our society overall uh, relates and connects with each other. So I want to go down that path in a second. But something you said that I'm fascinated by and kind of what we see in our line of work, which you had mentioned, is that there isn't enough data and data-driven decision-making in this space. And traditionally, because it's nonprofit, it's like as long as you help people, as long as people show up to your workshops, as long as you're doing events that help small businesses, there hasn't been the the question on ROI or impact or trying to understand how far does your dollars go. Can you talk a little bit about how you guys do research and any findings that you you can share with us? Sure. So, you know, our, our research agenda uh, kicked off actually right at the start um, of the global pandemic, even though it had been planned, it was the timing was, I guess, impeccable, given that, you know, when we were seeing shutdowns across the country, you know, I think the you know, from everything from media to other national to public policy leaders were trying to better understand, well, how is that going to impact the overall, you know, sort of sustainability of small businesses across the country. The problem was there wasn't much of a baseline um, there, you know, relative to what was the e-commerce situation, for example, within small businesses. And when I say small businesses, and you and I both know this, we're not talking about the SBA definition of 500 or less. You know, for us, it's really less than 20 employees. And you know, and then I think the other big thing for us was trying to better understand beyond the anecdotal um, what truly, you know, was happening on the ground relative to impact, relative to the ability um, for small businesses to connect to resources, to understand about business model, you know, pivots, um, you know, that was really core. So, you know, part of our first kind of foray from a, a, a research perspective uh, was actually just trying to better diagnose some of the impacts. And that was in April of 2020. We did a national study of um, well over 6,000 small businesses, again, less than 20, which was a huge data set and really was was the first of that, that size in the country. And one of the, the stark realities um, that, that you know, emerged from that particular study was on e-commerce. And again, anecdotally, I think, you know, we all knew that, Perhaps many of our small businesses hadn't, you know, gone to bricks and clicks. Well, you know, when we saw that that two thirds um, of small business owners did not have an e-commerce component to their business, you know, that was like red lights flashing, and um, in in some ways a little bit of a panic. And in those that did, the third that actually did, it represented less than fifteen percent of their overall revenue stream. So. Even though those that may have been in the business, it still wasn't a huge part. And when we, when you were essentially left with only having e-commerce and then some that migrated to maybe delivery or pickup, that's a sizable issue um, for you know not only the small businesses but those that want to support small business to better understand and sort of diagnose and figure out programming-wise how we were going to attack that. It's fascinating. We did a study during the same time, a uh, little bit in uh, after the pandemic started to understand impact. And uh, I appreciate how you kind of clarified small businesses, not the 500 and below. For us, you know, we actually call it small and micro businesses. So 10 employees or fewer. And uh, and we did a study in Detroit where we uh, we didn't do it at such a scale as you did across the country, but we 
queried 3,000 small businesses and got about 750 responses out of that. And we found amazing data. So e-commerce was definitely top of mind. Also access to small capital, not the you know 250,000 and over that the CDFIs are incentivized to provide. A lot of these people, it's family business. So they want 25,000 or 50,000 max. And there isn't the network to provide that. And they all end up with online lenders who have terrible interest rates and you get into the cycle of debt, right? And, and it's worse. Um, so yeah, absolutely. I love that we're doing this research-based kind of, you know, triaging of what we need to provide. Yeah, m- most definitely. And I, and I will echo uh, sort of your sentiment around like the capital issues. And I think they're slightly different even from like a rural urban context. You know, you look at rural America, same, same sort of need in terms of that missing element of finance. But there you have this, this issue of bank consolidation that over the years has sent commercial lending to you know, larger regional hubs and out of communities. And then on the urban you know, side, there may be additional resources, but you have severe sort of access and connectivity issues. Um, and it's sort of like, where do you find these pockets of available capital? Yeah. And, and, and the last point on that, even when you have an established relationship if it's with a big bank, you were left out in the cold. Like they were not giving, in fact, uh, if you had a relationship with Bank of America, they had like a hotline. They wouldn't answer a question any other way. And a lot of small businesses didn't have their financials ready, right? And then they didn't get in for the first or second rounds. Uh, so I think this is a very important uh, topic. Uh, but I'm going to shift to another thing you had mentioned, because I'm also curious to get your thoughts on this, is around research. Uh, and uh, the research around the, the main street and the downtown, which is the third pillar you had mentioned. Uh, and I want to focus around innovation there. So of course the e-commerce is like the direct um, innovation, but what do you think the future of main street and downtown is going to look like? Because there has to be innovation to bring people back there. Correct. Yeah. So, you know, from, again, from a research perspective, we continue to both um, attack from sort of the, the consumer side, but trying to understand what remains relevant, what remains sticky in a post sort of, you know, pandemic era. And then the same thing with small businesses and also, you know, our directors in terms of what's happening in the trenches with revitalization. And I think what you find from an innovation uh, perspective um, combined with understanding of the research is that things like, you know, e-commerce, uh, for example, you know, online, yeah, there'll be some pullback, I think, you know, in terms of bricks regaining some of that, that space. But, you know, the, the, the growth that we saw during the pandemic, you know, much of that will still remain relevant. What I think has changed from a consumer perspective, and you sort of alluded to this, David, earlier, is that I think consumers, for the first time, we're able to visually see the impact of, oh my gosh, what happens if my small businesses aren't there, whether it's in my neighborhood or in my downtown. And so consumers, when you ask them nationally or in local surveys, will indicate that if there is an online capability at the small business, they will shift from national to local to support. Because I think what, what small business has become is, is a quality of life indicator for communities that much like a school system, much like a a great park system, good governance, that 
avoid having those small businesses, it impacts where you live, the image that you have of your community. And so from that standpoint, we've got to we got to do better at meeting consumers where they're at because the desires there, whether it's in pickup, delivery and maintaining that and obviously e-commerce as a component. Something you just said gave me goosebumps, which is the quality of life conversation. Um, I was talking to another researcher where they said that there's been studies where if you've taken away the local watering hole, it could be a barbershop, uh, a bar, whatever, you actually see impact in the happiness quotient of that community. That actually there isn't a place to connect anymore and it actually affects the social structure. Not, the economy already was affected, but now also the social fabric of that community is being affected because that watering hole, that informal place where uh, news was shared, uh, relationships were built is is gone. And can you speak to that? Do you see that play out across the country? Yeah, there were a number of initiatives, and not only during you know the pandemic, but even you know in the lead up to the pandemic, where there were concerns, for instance, in in Iowa around local corner taverns. Um, you know, again, these places of an engagement. And I think what we've been seeing during sort of this great dispersion era, where you know commerce goes direct to consumers in in many ways is that it started to hollow out that community engagement piece that you get in a traditional bricks kind of sales interaction and I, I think you know being remote being online all the time being disconnected has again brought that out that awareness of what's it like when you don't have that piece so Again, silver linings, perhaps opportunities, obviously coming out of the pandemic, I think, to really re-engage consumers on that scale. Let's talk about some hard work that needs to happen in this space. Um, how do you influence local city governments and municipalities to have more formal ways to support small businesses? I mean, through the pandemic, they have provided like bridge loans or uh, small grants to kind of get them and keep them afloat. But I feel like there also needs to be a policy uh, thought uh, put into this on how do you support the small business structure in your downtowns and your main streets? Do you guys offer any kind of guidance around that? Yeah, so so for us, you know, part of that's the, the legacy of Main Street. It's a guiding principle of the work that we do that is around public-private partnership, that you know, you can have a great nonprofit leading the cause. You can have small business commitment. But if it's not, you know, supported by the, the city, the village or, or the local neighborhood, um, that's going to be a difficult um, haul. The sort of the overlay to that relative to small businesses, um, we certainly feel is you've got to have a good ecosystem in play um, as a support system for those small businesses, micro ventures, you know, whatever level um, of part of the business life cycle um, that they may be in. And government policy and the regulatory is obviously a huge factor there, along with financial capital and social capital and, you know, the whole sort of um, gamut there. And so we try to, to really approach it from a number of different layers um, in, in ensuring that there's an active partner there, that there is awareness and education, and that's where the data and research comes into play. So when you can go to local government, you know, government and share 
some of the complexities that small businesses are facing, some of the access issues that they're facing. But also, I think, and this came out in, in another survey that we did in July during the whole PPP and EIDL phase, was for you know, government to understand that there is an important role for connectors to play in the form of economic development. We often see sort of this the city and then who are we ultimately serving? But someone, you know, a group entity is so critical in the middle there to cut through the clutter, to cut through, you know, the bureaucracy, you know, to quickly make those connections that sees the whole sort of picture. You know, that's small business isn't going to have that. Government doesn't always have maybe the trust and relationship. So connectors like Main Streets, Chambers, Small Business Development Centers, Economic Development Organizations, we saw in our research were just hypercritical when it came to connections to technical assistance and financial assistance during the pandemic. So I think that's made some serious inroads as well. Yeah, I'm fascinated by how uh, the the what you're describing is is so much what we see across the country and uh, again gives me goosebumps because when we did our study we found the same thing so uh, we found that people of color and other minorities applied at 37 percent compared to a national average of 70 percent for ppp and so we went in and started digging into the data to say you're leaving behind because this capital if it was if it is um, used correctly can be forgiven Right. Like you don't end up with actual debt. And the small businesses said, you know, we don't trust the government. We think we're going to get more debt. And the key word you talked about, right, it's that community navigator or the trusted connector. The person on the ground that is a frontline worker who bridges the government program to the small business. And and there is a factor of trust. But there are also practical things like language. There are language barriers with some of these small businesses uh, there might be some things that are unique to their community that the government or the, the whoever's providing the program doesn't get. And uh, so I think now everybody's starting to understand the value of this community uh, connector. And the reason I say everybody is because the SBA just launched a $100 million program to build these uh, pilot for trusted connectors. And and we've been doing this work without knowing any of this. So we uh, at Startup Space, we had actually built what we call this hub and spoke model that they are talking about with hubs and super hubs, where, for example, in Tennessee, we have launched Tennessee as our partner across the state, but then all of the regions get their own hubs. So Knoxville, Nashville, Memphis, because you need to be able to connect on the ground and you need boots on the ground to be able to actually go walk the streets, talk to the small businesses, et cetera. Uh, But you also need to have that overarching entity that can now collect the data, put the stories together, can go advocate for you, you need both sides of the, the the story. Otherwise, it's not going to work because a lot of this connector work is really hard work, right? It's pounding the pavement. It's building those relationships. Some of these will take decades to build. You're not just going to say, I've installed a community, a trusted community partner, right? It's It doesn't work like that. Uh, so talking about this kind of work, of course, the government now understands this. But how do you fund this kind of work? Because it's hard. It's long term. Uh, is there ROI in this? Is there something that this does better than our traditional ways of supporting small businesses? Yeah, so um, I think from an economic development uh, perspective, because obviously that's a, ch- a channel in which the connector, you know, these um, 
these organizations exist that you know one of the critical things that we found is that there's a lot of uh, inefficiencies in the system um, and and sometimes we also tend to follow kind of a, maybe a herd approach <laughs> whether that's leading off a cliff or what have you um, and you know when we look at the world of economic development there's a lot of capital whether it's from EDA or others there's flowing into sort of the traditional recruitment game and those those sorts of things but if you again if you go back to data what data suggests and this came out in our September um, study, of small business owners where we were examining the role of place in, in their sort of formation, growth, you know, sustainability, et cetera. And what we found was that 70% of those businesses were launched by people that lived in that community. They didn't, you know, you know, try to teleport from somewhere else or get recruited there. 70%. And and so some people might say, well, that's, you know, small business, retail, whatever. If you look at manufacturing, it was 56%. Okay, so still over half. And when you looked at large employment, so now plus 20, um, it still was over um, half. And so all it does is suggest that from an efficiency standpoint, where we're directing resources is also hypercritical. And so growing from within, mining those micro ventures, creating support systems that help, you know, businesses scale from a phase, you know, phase zero to phase one and phase two, you know, helping people at all specters of the life cycle has a much bigger ROI than where we're traditionally placing so much of our economic development capacity and resources. Yeah. So there's two pieces there, right? There is the, the focus that economic developers have on job creation, which is usually net zero when you try to bring businesses from somewhere else because somebody else is at the same time taking a business from your community away from you. Zero but sum game. Yeah, and there's zero sum game with so much focus and so much, uh, re so many resources directed towards that, right? You'll see that uh, in any um, uh, EDA, if you go to an EDA or EDC and look at their team structure, there'll be one which is the, the business retention attraction that has 15 people and there's one for entrepreneurship, one person for entrepreneurship. And like you said, net, net, the only people that are going to create jobs are the people in your community. And everybody else is just kind of displacing workers back and forth. And, and there's another pillar, which is workforce development. If you focus on that, there's also ROI there, right? But the, the traditional focus has to shift. Uh, so that's first. And then also the EDA, the EDA, USDA, SBA, they all have so much money around infrastructure creation for entrepreneurship. But again, there, the money doesn't end up with the small businesses or this place-based uh, businesses. How do we change this narrative? How do we kind of, because we all know this now, like I've been to IEDC conferences where now nobody disputes it, but we still can't seem to move the needle because you still are attracted to the HQ2s moving into your community, right? How do you change this narrative? Yeah, it, it's, it's a great question, David. I mean, from our standpoint, you know, we work through our network of 1,200 plus main streets across the, uh, the country in both the urban and rural context. And so we're playing from, you know, a position of strength uh, in that we've got built-in organizations, to your point, in the trenches. We know it's very high touch. You know, our sense is we've got to continue to provide them with tools, programming, and data to make those cases at the local level. 
that's where we think change, real change occurs. And if we can, you know, systematize that at the local level, that's where we're putting most of our effort. So let's talk a little bit about uh, COVID. And rather than talk about the impact which we all get, can you dream for us what the Main Street of tomorrow will look like? I'm sure you guys talk about this in your meetings. What will the Main Street in 2030 look like? Yeah, so uh, we call that reimagination. <laughs> sort of the McKenzie model here. Um, so, yeah, I think there's a couple things um, to that. I still think we have a long way to go to infusing new technology into um, how downtowns and districts operate. We talk technology from a business perspective, and you know that's truly needed. There's still a lot of education and programming to do on that side. But whether it's it's understanding the need for public infrastructure that relates to um, you know, electric car charging stations, bike charging stations, to parking apps, um, to different um, co-op um, models for reaching consumers in this new age around community e-commerce platforms. So not counting on Amazon to find your local retail, that's not going to work. But we know that consumers are interested in shopping more locally. So thinking about sort of that kind of context but at a local level, um, to co-op delivery systems, you know, um, so there's like model changes as well that I think are very and highly interesting um, at the, even, you know, at a smaller rural scale to, um, you know, broadband infrastructure obviously is a, is a huge thing. So I think what COVID has done is it's been the greatest accelerator of all time. And it's brought us to this point where, um, I think it's it's given us some time actually to be more reflective on how do we engage and utilize these things primarily because we were forced to. And so again, I, I like to think about the silver lining, the opportunities come out, and I think you know it's presented quite a bit and will form, I think help to form more sustainable downtowns and small businesses in the end. In, in corporate America, we saw this transformation happen a decade ago when people realized the power of Amazon. They said Best Buy is going to go out of business, but it didn't. It actually is thriving. And then, like you said, I think uh, necessity is the mother of all innovation. And that innovation just hit small business America, right? And I look at my own personal life and anything that's transactional, I'm willing to take online. Anything that's experience-based, I want it in person. So, for example, I haven't been to the grocery store for real grocery shopping other than picking up a couple of things in almost eight months. All of my groceries get delivered because it's very transactional, right? I need milk, eggs, bread. You can just get that delivered to you. But we seek out better experiences now. On the weekends, we're way more intentional about having these experiences because we've saved the time on the transactional experience and now we're going for the real experience. And I think that small businesses have to kind of adapt to that like you said like you got to think about in the future if you are not going to have to worry about like they have their online presence the things get shipped but if you end up in front of my doorsteps i give you such an experience that you keep coming back for that right yeah i mean i think we uh there's two things there when we when we didn't have that opportunity during the shutdowns it was it was fascinating to watch uh, um an e-commerce platform like etsy 
know, Etsy grew by, you know, 147% during the pandemic. And, you know, Etsy being a platform for artisans, you know, to your point, sort of the experience kind of, um, you know, players, small businesses. And so there was, there's still a lot of huge pent up demand there. And that relates then to the ability to have that in a real sort of bricks experience one-on-one. So I think that's still highly relevant. And part of that small business um, kind of shift or, 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 or pivot is, is how do you incorporate more of those kinds of experiences? So I think we'll see more small businesses offer classes, um, you know, education kinds of, of content, be able to watch someone do, do something, to be able to tell a story or share a story with your friends and family based on that um, experience. Um, to, to doing like lots more in terms of like pop-ups, even as an existing businesses, taking your business on a road show um, or going into mobile retailing, bringing another small business in with you and sort of doing complimentary retailing. So I think there's a lot of transitions um, ahead and I think it's exciting. I'll tell you one story. So my wife, is trying to do her team building event and she needs it to be virtual because there's people in other parts of the country. And she went to Airbnb and picked out an experience where an authentic Italian chef from Florence is teaching live. Uh, He's in his actual class and studio teaching her, uh, her team how to make a pizza from scratch. Um, We couldn't have imagined this. Absolutely amazing. So first, like, how do I get invited? And second, like, that's that's exactly what we're talking about, right? Yeah. Yep. Fantastic. Yeah. So uh, last question for you, and I feel like I can have this for like two hours and, you know, I just keep learning. Uh, last question for people that are listening to this podcast who are mainly practitioners of ecosystem building. So they are usually the people standing up the trusted connectors or in some cases the trusted connectors themselves and act between the economic development organizations and the people on the ground. How do you get into this work? How do you advocate for more resources for the work you do? Because that question always keeps coming up. Such a critical role, everybody realizes it, but there isn't funding for it. There isn't a way to describe it. How do you bring more of this kind of uh, people-based infrastructure and what have you learned in doing this? Yeah, so great, great question. You know, I think first and foremost is, is you know be the um, the information connector. There's so many resources um, out there. We just launched um, at our national conference um, last month some new uh, tools around ecosystem building. They're all free, downloadable. They were uh, wonderfully supported by the Kaufman Foundation. You know, truly a leader in ecosystem building and supportive ecosystem builders. And I, I think you know um, that sort of ad hoc um, approach of finding, um, we use this, this saying called the 20-60-20 rule. You know, there's 20% that are these champions are on board, 60% kind of fence sitters, and then 20%, you know, <laughs> we'll eventually get to them. Find those other 20% champions, um, whether they're, you know, other stakeholders in the community, you know, now with, you know, Facebook to Instagram or whatever, it's really easy to just pop up, hey, who else is interested in supporting small business? And given the climate that we're in, I think there's a lot of interest. So I think you can start things organically and at the grassroots uh, level. 
And to me, rather than a top-down approach, I think that has the potential for more long-term sustainability um, if it can then be coupled with some of those existing organizations that are in that space. And oftentimes it's the, the coupling of those two together that I think really uh, bolsters and strengthens um, that ecosystem building approach. In the show notes, we will add links to your ecosystem uh, building documents so the practitioners can download right from the podcast. Wonderful. Uh, and, and Matt, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. We've learned so much today and we hope we can bring you back uh, at a future date. Yeah, I would love that, David. Thanks for having me. really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Breaking Down Barriers, a podcast for entrepreneurship community practitioners hosted by David Ponraj. Special thanks to Sri Sundaram for joining us. Cover art by show manager and creative director Mackenzie Dial Fritcher. Edited and produced by Lauren Bernard. If you'd like to suggest interviewees, new topics, or just want to reach out, please email us at podcast at startupspace.app. All Breaking Down Barriers episodes are available on our website or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Feel free to rate, review, and subscribe for all the latest updates.